But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> okay, so what are we going to talk about? Uh, so here's one thing I want to talk about. The, uh, um, so the last episode we recorded before Sun and Fun, we talked about this uh, new uh, GB uh, uh, airplane that's being this, this, this replica or, you know, kind of in GB inspired. It's not, I think it's not exactly a replica, but uh, we talked about it uh, last time. And a, uh, a listener uh, put some information in the, fo- in the forums. Let's see now. Listener Aviator1929 yeah. uh, posted some uh, uh, additional information about the GB in general and the, uh, uh, and the, uh, and, and the, two replicas that we were talking about. Uh, he writes, Hey guys, uh, just wanted to point out quick that there was an original QED. It was built as a cross-country racer and is on static display at a museum today. The replica has more wing and tail area to handle the extra power, but it's based on the first QED. Uh, the R1 was an earlier design, and also I think Delmar, Delmar's, which is the Delmar Benjamin replica we were talking about, uh, was an R2 which is a slightly smaller engine than the R R one, but uh, there's an interesting picture here. He's posted in the in the forums. Uh, yeah. Conquist. What's it say on the side? It says Conquistador del Cielo. Cielo. Conqueror of the sky. Ah, very. Oh, I'm so impressed. That's good, Jeb. That's not. You didn't Google Translate that, did you? No, no. I I actually went to school once or twice. <laughs> Wow. Uh, how long have I been talking to you and I only just learned this? That's cool. All right. Conqueror of the Skies. It's, uh... Now, this looks much more like the airplane that the new guy is building. With the, the, It appears like it has room for two seats under the canopy. And... Yeah, this, is, this looks to me like a slightly longer fuselage version. Um, and the greenhouse is, is larger, longer. Um, whether... It is, in fact, longer, and whether it is, in fact, a two-seater or, or more, I uh, can't really tell from these images, but uh, that's what it appears to be. Yeah. What happens if we Google the name that's on the picture here? Let's see here. It's, it says Sarabia, which I don't know if that's the person's name. Or... There's a whole bunch more images. If, you, if you'll, get a, you'll get a link to a Moody Blues tune. <laughs> well, I really? What's that? I... GB Sarabia is a is a uh, is a Moody Con- Blues conquistador. Oh, conquistador! Yeah, well, I didn't I didn't Google that. Actually, I googled GB uh, Sarabia, and uh, and then clicked images, and there's a whole bunch more images here. This is kind of cool. Is it in Saudi Arabia? I don't know. Is it? There's also a Wikipedia entry. I get more images for this airplane, actually. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Um. The GB, this is from a Wikipedia entry for the GBQED. It says the GBQED, and then it says that that's quod erat demonstratum. Okay, Jeb, if you can do that one, I'm going to be really... That's impressed. Latin. I didn't take Latin. Okay. A.K.A. the GBR6H. A.K.A. the Conquistador del... Is it Cielo but, but, or Cielo? Uh, got him. Sky Conqueror. Cielo. Cielo, okay, Cielo. Uh, was the last in a series of racing and touring aircraft from the Granville brothers, and that's the name I, from, I remember from that. Actually, that's what GB stands for, right? Unlike the other famous GB aircraft, the QED had the distinction of never finishing a race it was entered in. Okay, well, there you go. That's a, that's a distinction. Uh, GB QED was started by Granville brothers in 1933 prior to their October bankruptcy. February 34, I'm kind of paraphrasing now, uh, Granny Granville died in South Carolina delivering 
a sports, I guess apparently Granny was a builder, maybe one of the brothers, I don't know, um, delivering a Sportster E used to finance a new company business. It goes on and on. It's kind of a complicated, it sounds like a little soap opera here, which is actually right up my alley. But uh, So, uh, kind of cool. Kind of cool. Yeah. Kind of yeah. cool, and I bet every bit as much of a handful to fly as... Well, yeah. The R1 and the yeah. R2. Yeah, the, 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 the only thing that would give, I don't know, some, some uh, comfort uh, is the, what appears, again, appears to be a slightly longer fuselage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I believe it is. Uh, it, it's definitely, I was looking at an R2 picture from Delmar's days side uh-huh. by side with the, the Conqueror of the Sky here. And definitely Conqueror of the Sky has got a little bit more wing. Well, a good deal more wing, but it's carrying more. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, weren't there, I see, I have this, you know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, a GB expert by any stretch, but. Weren't there like two sets of wings uh, for this airplane? The short ones being used for uh, uh, pure speed races, uh, the longer ones being used for uh, cross country races. I do not know. Uh, that would be uh, an interesting solution to, you know, what was always kind of a dichotomy in building racers. What, what right. kind of race do you build it for? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, interesting um, question, Jeb. Um, for what it's worth, the Wikipedia entry does not make any reference to that, but that doesn't mean anything. Um, that would be an interesting piece of work because that would, from the looks of these airplanes and their upper and lower flying wires, that, that would not be a, a spot-on quick swap piece of right. work. No, no. Um as I recall, the reason this came up was because they were thinking that this new GB restoration might make it to Air Venture this summer. I wonder if there's any news. Oh, yeah, well, here's a story from, uh, well, this is February 2014, so that was before we actually talked about it last time. But this talks about it being at Air, at Air Venture. Uh, this is from the airventure.org website, uh, GB QED to appear at EA Air Venture. I won't try and read the whole story, but uh, anyways... What's this video? This is a. It shows a. a it looks like Delmar Benjamin's airplane with all the skin panels, or many of the skin panels removed, so you can see the uh, structure inside. That's on the AirVenture page. Um, anyways, it's a hell of a piece of machinery. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, thank you to uh, uh, listener Aviator nineteen twenty nine for uh, calling our attention to this additional information. It's it's kind of cool, and. Uh, It'll be something to see this airplane fly again. I mean, it's a slightly different airplane, but uh, I remember yeah. the, the first G, what I call the first GB, the Delmar Benjamin GB. Um, it was it, uh, was a pretty the, cool thing to see fly. The R2 replica. The R2 replica, and uh, and it was it, and it, you know, maybe it was just an optical illusion based on the size of the aircraft, but it seemed to zip along, man. He'd do low flybys, and you know, it would zoom on by, and uh, oh, it's fast, you know, and uh, looked like a little bumblebee, kind of fat and and short, and and uh, zipping fast, 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 and uh, and 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 like it, it's defying all laws of aerodynamics because it, you look at it and you go, no way that flies. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, and uh, and apparently almost no way it flies. But uh, Delmar never had any problems with it, fortunately. And uh, well, proof positive that if you put enough power on a brick, you can get it off the ground for, at least for a while. That's exactly right. Exactly right. You, you exactly. Got right. enough power, you can fly anything. Yeah. 
And uh, speaking of which, uh, I'll say welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Was that uh, speaking of bricks? Is that what <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, I think <laughs> things that if you give it enough power, it'll it'll do something. I don't know if that, ah, what that means gotcha. exactly. There's some sort of vague, you know, uh, a self-deprecating reference in there. You figure it out. Well, it is it is Saturday morning. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's Saturday morning. It's de- we're definitely deep into coffee time uh, as opposed to our normal beverages. But uh, uh, on a, after Friday night, we're definitely thick as a brick. Yes, so true, so true. It's uh, it, it is Saturday morning, and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming to you uh, this morning from uh, uh, the uh, beautiful Letty Fields in in Epping, New Hampshire. Echo Papa Papa Ing, New Hampshire, and this has become a thing. Jeb, you've started. I, you better not ever show your face in Epping, New Hampshire, because there are people all over America now who are saying Epping, New Hampshire. No, Epping, New Hampshire, um, where spring has finally taken hold. Um, we actually had snow like last week. It was unbelievable. We woke up one morning and the front lawn was white. People all over New England were posting social media pictures horrified at the snow on the lawn. Apparently the whole country. David, you had it too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, A a couple of days ahead of you guys. Yeah, Uh, and I just got back from Pittsburgh. They were saying they had snow about a week ago too. So it was one of those, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not sure if we can call them freak snowstorms anymore. This is the new normal. But uh, anyways. Only if you see a guy on a Volkswagen bus running around in it, then it's a freak snowstorm. Okay. I'm talking this morning (laughs) to my two good friends. Uh, One of those voices out there, that's uh, Dave uh, Dave Higdon uh, talking to us from uh, uh, no longer snowy uh, Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you doing this morning? Doing wonderful, doing wonderful. Uh, got a got a nice full day planned. Uh, lots of sunshine. Not expecting weather until later in the day. So, this is a great way to kick off the morning. I know. Airplanes or motorcycles or both. Both. Cool. We're going to yeah. go from here to the motorcycle to a rally uh, for something completely unrelated, and then off to an uh, effing airport for lunch. Did you say effing airport? I did. <laughs> oh, nothing. Oh, I get it now. All right. Cool. That sounds like it'll be fun. You'll tell us about it later on. And my other good friend here is uh, Jeb Burnside, uh, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. And uh, did it snow there last week, Jeb? It did not, <laughs> surprisingly. Um, Once again, uh, extending the streak. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, we're just, yeah, we're, we're just piling on now. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, how you doing? What's going on down there? Are you having fun? Uh, just, uh, I am spiffy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I got more than I can shake a leg at um, on my plate right now, and uh, uh, you know there there will be an end to this uh, this frantic activity. But uh, yeah, you don't know, man. I've been uh, talking to you every week for seven years now. And there hasn't been an end yet, so yeah, well, um, I wish you luck with that. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate. It. I got several weeks here of uh, no fun and no games, but uh, um, uh, at the end of the day, I, I will get paid for it all. So you know, I guess that's that's something. Well, that's always a good thing. Yeah. It, 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 Jack hit it exactly right. We never really run off of this treadmill. We just step to the side of it every few. Every yeah, few weeks. That's true. Yeah, that's it's just true. How far behind real time are you? It's like, I don't know. I, I don't For some reason, it's a TiVo yeah. reference where you can watch TV, but you're uh-huh. actually 20 minutes behind and you never actually catch up to, you know, now. And, oh, never mind. That's just maybe. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. Yeah. Um, um, there, there will come a day. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm, look, I'm, I'm rooting for you. 
I've know. given up, but I'm rooting for you. You can, do it. <laughs> you can do it. Go for it. I appreciate. Sound it. like a song. Jeff's yeah. day will come. Yeah, there you go. Speaking of treadmills and never catching up to zero, um, <laughs> good news here. Good news. The ADSB system is complete. I mean, like you know, right? I don't know what this story means. You're going to have to explain this to me. So this is a story from uh, avweb.com. I've seen this story reported in other places as well. It actually goes back about two weeks now almost. Um, but it says uh, uh, ADSB is now installed nationwide, the FAA said on Monday, again, two weeks ago. Um, although services won't be available at all air traffic facilities till 2019. So it's done, but we're not going to turn it on for five years. Okay, back up a step. All right, tell me why. Tell me why my cynicism is misplaced. Well, first off, I, I, I give them a pat on the head. The FAA, uh, eight hundred independence folks, uh, because this is a network of ground stations that numbers. Uh, they have to look it up. Six hundred and twenty odd stations spread all across the continent of the United States, up into uh, uh, Alaska. Uh, down in the American possessions uh, in the Caribbean, uh, all along the Gulf Coast. Uh, and those are turned on. So if you fly in the vicinity of those, they should be giving you information if you ping them with an out. Right. But what's not complete yet is the hookup of all those 620-plus stations to air traffic control centers where the controllers can actually see everything that the ground station sees. About 105 or 106 are already uh, ATC facilities are using ADSB traffic from those stations. Uh, that leaves about 125 to go. And they add a few of those pretty much every quarter. Uh, they have been for several years now. Then uh, they're trying to fill in. I, I look at the map and I discern that there's a pattern here where they're trying to fill in from the more heavily trafficked areas uh, into the more sparsely trafficked areas. Uh, but eventually, like you said, 2019, all of these will be talking to an air traffic control facility where a controller can see traffic from the old-fashioned uh, radar system and from the ADSB out mm -hmm. uh, signals from uh, the airplanes that fly by. And for people that have ADSB in, whether it's non-certified portable runs on your iPad or your tablet or hot stuff hardware installed in the airplane, you fly through that territory with an out signal, that ground station should light up and send mm -hmm. you stuff back. Yeah. On paper, it's an awesome idea. Jeb, you, you, on the other hand, have often had a less optimistic view of ADSB than David. What's your take on this news story? Well, first of all, the it's you know obviously uh, something of a, an achievement for the agency uh, to get all these ground stations installed. Um, I, I, like you, I'm kind of, of bemused and confused on on use of the words installed but not operational or, or whatever the the correct phrase should be. Um, if they're installed, why aren't they up and running? Yada yada yada. I guess the the answer to that is um, once they're installed, it still takes some time to connect them into the, the national airspace system. And we've seen over the last several years, you know, some of the very first ADSB uh, ground-based installations go into place, and they, you know, kind of came online uh, months slash years later. Mm -hmm. um, here in, in in Florida, 
Um, we have, uh, uh, at least here in, in, um, in Sarasota, you know, I can get ADSB uh, weather information on the ground, actually, as mm-hmm. I'm taxiing out, which is, is quite a deal. Yeah, um, I've seen and, 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 many installations yeah. where ADSB is definitely better than nothing. Yeah, you know, a lot yeah. better than nothing. It's an, right. you know, at its, it's you know, at its best, it's a nice system. At, at its best, it's a nice system. Um, my only real gripe, in long-standing gripe with ADSB, um, is that it doesn't really provide to operators much more than we already have, albeit from different sources, different resources. Uh, traffic we can get now in the cockpit. Um, uh, in-flight uh, weather data we can get now in the cockpit from non-FAA sources um, and have been getting those services uh, for a number of years. Um, ADSB, uh, and you know, there's all this talk about it being a satellite-based and and uh, you know more accurate and, and yada yada yada. It's only satellite based, <clears throat> excuse me, in the sense that it uses GPS right. uh, for position uh, finding. Um, the uh, um, the actual communication with the ATC system is done through these aforementioned ground stations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the backroom um, hardware and software is, is where the magic is. And that's what makes it valuable to ATC. They can take um, the the airborne um, um, GPS receivers data, which is transmitted via via ADSB out, uh, crunch that data in real time, and zap back to you a picture of traffic around you. Uh, they can put um, uh, you know uh, the the the, uh, the flight information uh, uh, data, the weather and and uh, other assorted um, um, textual and graphic uh, information uh, out through the uh, ADSB out. I'm sorry, through the ADSB in receivers, mm-hmm. and, and give you you know again the same things that you that you have now. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, it doesn't really provide that much. Uh, um, let me rephrase this. At the end of the day, it doesn't give the typical GA operator anything more than he or she had uh, a couple of three years ago. Yeah. Uh, what it does is it makes things easier for the agency, makes things easier and cheaper for the FAA. It doesn't have to maintain all these radar sites. Um, the, uh, the, the computers used, or the systems, I should say, used to, to crunch all this data in real time are, are um, um, relatively simple uh, uh, pieces of equipment um, as opposed to you know the the, the big IBM mainframes right, that uh, right. would crunch the the radar data. Yeah. So it's it's really more of a of a boon for the agency as opposed to operators. Yeah. Now isn't Thank there? You. I'm sorry, David. Let me just ask this question. Isn't refresh sure. my memory? Isn't there a deadline in place now for by which we yeah. have to have this gear equipped in yeah. all of our airplanes? Well, yes and no. Um, Basically, the, the rule says, uh, as of January 1, 2020, um, right. operators who wish to access certain airspace must have ADSB out installed. They, they may or may not need ADSB in. There is no rule at this time requiring ADSB in. Right. Um, the, um, the airspace in question is basically the same airspace where mode C transponders are required now. Yeah. 
And I'm still I'm still running my pool on whether this technology is even vaguely state of the art by 2020. But anyways, David, last yeah. thought, and we'll move on. Oh, Jeb, I'm sorry. It sounded like you wanted to add something. Well, I, I, I wanted to respond. Yeah, I wanted to respond to that. I, I think the quick answer is no. Um, it won't be state of the art. Right? It won't be state of the art. But here's the punchline. Um, the, to me, the ADSB um, network is really that. It's really more of a network. Um, and if you if you think of um, the, all these ground based stations uh, forming such a network, it's it's going to be not unlike the internet in that um, the airplane is going to be connected. It's going to be connected to the FAA. The FAA in turn, or I should say, the ATC system. The ATC system in turn will be connected back to the airplane. Um, so that is certainly a, a technological advance. Mm-hmm. Um, the obsolescence, um, if there is any, uh, will come from uh, um, uh, data rates, uh, throughput, bandwidth, all these kinds of things. The, the good thing about this, this uh, architecture, and uh, you know, there's a lot of geeks out there listening to, to me talk about something I know very little about, but to me, the, arc, the, 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 the value of the architecture is all of this can be tweaked and changed in software um, at the FAA level, at the ATC level, um, and improvements can be made, and hopefully obsolescence prevented. Um, but the, the basic hardware, once it's installed, uh, should be, quote-unquote, uh, uh, robust enough to allow for to prevent some obsolescence down the road, but you're right. You know, you're looking at a at a, um, a technology that was basically defined. I don't know. Pick a number. Ten years ago, <clears throat> and it's going to be six more years before it's in widespread use. And gee, have, can things change in in fifteen, sixteen years? Of course they can. Wow. Yeah, uh, David, you want to wrap it up? Yeah. Uh, first off, Jeb's dead on. About the uh, uh, about the relative benefits to the agency uh, and their traffic management, uh, the higher precision of an ADSB position report compared to our current secondary surveillance radar system with the transponder squawking in altitude and and, and pinging where you are uh, is a, a huge improvement for them and and the argument is already being put to work in places like Louisville and Memphis and Indianapolis where you've got a lot of high volume overnight carrier flights coming in where they're actually using ADSB links between airplanes to manage arrival speeds and increase the runway acceptance rates at some of the airports involved. In other words, more traffic in the same amount of time uh, and that should translate to the en route environment as well. We'll let them pack more sausage into the same tube. Uh, the one area where I, I think it's worth noting is that Jeb's right. This doesn't add anything new to the well of what was available to pilots before. What it does do is give pilots that weren't equipped with some of this ADSB in duplicating services like traffic and weather, an option now that's going to be, in the long term, a lot less expensive for them. Uh, They don't have to buy a traffic box. They don't have to buy a weather data link box and then pay a monthly subscription for the weather they get. Uh, For the ADSB in part, actually, a $700, $800 uh, portable 
receiver will do it. And I think Jeb's got one along those lines that talked yeah. to one of his tablets. Right. Uh, he can get all that stuff for way less than a, uh, a data link box to plug into his Garmin 530. Uh and without a monthly subscription fee. Uh, traffic boxes right now, the portable ones are the uh, are, are the value leaders, and, and they're still around a grand. Uh, installed box is going to set you back a minimum of, of nine, cha- nine and change plus install. Uh, and then you got to have something to play it on. Uh, so this is a step forward for a lot of aircraft yeah. owners that yeah. didn't have that because yeah. by installing one box, like we saw uh, come out at Sun and Fun, you can get out in both types of out uh, and the GPS engine uh, for about five grand plus install. And it's got a wireless link to play the out stuff or the in stuff on your tablet. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyways, so you know it's 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 a step forward for a lot of guys. For a mm-hmm. lot of guys, other guys, it's just it's it's not a step at anything more than maybe lateral. Let them turn off the subscription weather and save themselves three hundred bucks a year. Yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. Dave's so, exactly right. We, we, yeah. Um, the, the the benefit to the vast majority of operators is getting this data and information free. Um, that said. Um, it's it's not at all clear to me uh, in my situation, for example, what's going to be the best upgrade path uh, given uh, the equipment I have already installed. Um, there's a lot of different choices. There's a, a maze of, of choices, if you will, and navigating that maze mm-hmm. uh, is is going to be a challenge for a lot of people. Um, um, hopefully, I'll, I'll be able to do that with a little bit more... Uh, well, alacrity than, than some others, but at the same time, um, it's not going to be an insignificant expense to upgrade my equipment. Well, so, that's an interesting question. The stuff that you have, the gear that you have in your airplane now, that system, that solution that you have there now, does that meet the requirements of the 2020 deadline? Um, the quick answer is no. My, I have a 530. Um, it is not WAS compatible. Okay. Now, as Dave correctly pointed out to me uh, in a summer conversation um, several months ago, um, the ADSB out spec, out from the aircraft spec, does not require uh, WAS GPS. Um, it, it, the specification simply uh, um, denotes what performance must be achieved. Right now, WAS GPS happens to be the only system that meets that performance spec. Okay, so a I I either have to upgrade my 530 to WAS, or get a a third box or second box, whatever you want to call it, that incorporates G, WAS GPS mm-hmm. uh, and sends that position data to the agency. And the head scratcher is well. If I've got to have WAS anyway, why don't I do it and put it in a box that I can use uh, to expand the operational capability of the airplane? One of the answers is it costs too freaking much. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, so there's, there's a lot of different equations involved and a lot of different calculations. My example is just one of thousands that other people, other operators are going to have to make. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll obviously come back to this. We've been talking about it for six, seven years. Yeah. We'll talk about it I was going to say, we got until 2021, yeah, 2022. That's right. yeah, so, uh, 
<laughs> so as long as we've covered it by episode 500, we're good to go. I yeah, just talk about evergreen. <laughs> yeah, right. This, this, this renewed feeling of fatigue just washed yeah, over. Right. <laughs> Why do I feel so tired? Uh, David, the ultimate, the UCAP's ultimate aircraft. Why, what, what is this? What's this all about? Uh, this is uh, another one of those dreams and schemes of flying machines that uh, general aviation is so good at spawning uh, and so mediocre at seeing come to fruition. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell us what you're talking tell, tell people what you're talking about here. Uh, we're talking about uh, a new amphibian design. Uh, it's a most radical and innovative amphib design I've seen in a long time. They say the first new amphibian design in over 60 years, Privateer Industries. Right. Uh, and that- they have a design for a single-engine pusher. Yep. Uh, with, uh, describe uh, this airplane. I want to see how you describe visually. What does this look like? Okay, it's a, it's a low-wing monoplane with two floats built to the wings yep. that house retractable landing gear. Oh, okay. And there's a T-tail that well, bridges them. It's not and okay, they a T-tail. Also serve it's, more as of a, it's more of a, a, a pie symbol-shaped t- tail, right? It's not a T exactly. I mean, it's sort of a yeah, T. It's not a T exactly, but it is a... a it's, it's sort of like two, two, two T's connected. It's sort of like two right. T's connected. Yeah. Okay. Think of an OV-1 Bronco. Right, because the because you've got the, you've got the vertical uh, of the rudder, uh, vertical rudders on bo- at the tail end of both uh, pontoons and then a connecting horizontal surface, Right. right. And it's very sleek looking, and uh, like you said, it's a pusher prop uh, with a uh, you know, obviously a rear-mounted engine, and uh, looks very sleek. Um, so, what, what I mean, other than being kind of a, a, a dramatic new design, David, is there anything else that that, that speaks for it? Uh, well, for some strange reason, they're going to use the 724 horsepower Walter 601 series turbine engine. Which I think now uh, belongs to GE, and it's called the H80. Wait a minute, this is a jet, turboprop, Tur- turboprop. But still, turboprop. a tur- turbo, right? It's a turbine. It's not a. It's a prop airplane with right. a turbine engine, right? Yeah, right. Well, okay. Uh, now we're in a pusher configuration, and the Walter is a nice engine, but the GE version of it is a big improvement, uh, both in fuel efficiency, uh, power output per pound, you name it. Uh, have flown a couple of airplanes with the H-80. Uh, you know, you, you have two ways to make sure that you don't stick your head into the spinning prop. That's look at the tachometer first or feel the air blast because you sure can't feel it running. It's that smooth. Yeah. So this is a one to – this is a five to six passenger airplane with a three-place bench street across the back of the cabin. Uh, they're saying an empty weight under 3,600 pounds, a full range, a full uh, still air range of 1,000 miles at max gross weight with a full passenger load. So uh, they, they've got some ambitions for this airplane. Uh, it ought to be fast as spit because uh, it is certainly a clean looking machine and on 700 horsepower if they're not able to get in the mid 250 knot range i'll be really surprised if it flies yeah oh so it hasn't flown yet well i'm sorry do they have a a, a timetable for flying this uh, this prototype i haven't found it yet so i can't give you that uh 
there was a looking, March update on this. You know, they picked the engine. Uh, they're working on an avionics package. Uh, the folks at Compair are doing the prototype work for them. Uh, those folks in Compair build uh, a line of uh, single-engine turboprop composite designs. Uh, they've been in South Florida for a long time now. Uh, so uh, we'll see how they how they progress mm-hmm. and uh, keep our fingers crossed. I mean, we love seeing new stuff coming into the community and something as innovative and advanced looking as this. Uh, we'll get a lot of people uh, talking and some people ponying up deposit money. And we'll see. Like I said, I'm anxious to see it fly. Yeah, really. Jeb, any thought? You want to land it in your pond, Jeb? Yeah, only it'll only do that once. Once yeah, uh, right. uh, the pond, <laughs> pond's not quite that big. I'm still, um, I'm, I'm still, I'm rooting for the the circling uh, climb out. You know, I, I yeah, saw, I yeah. saw birds doing it while I was down there, so I think it's doable for airplanes. Yeah, this won't do it as long as the bridge is still there because <laughs> yeah, uh, when, it's going to uh, need a little I, bit more of a run. I need a couple more laps uh, than than just a. a it's got a powerful engine, though, man. It's got a turbine yeah, engine. Yeah, yeah. I just. <sighs> Yeah, I just am trying to figure out how many amphibians the world needs. Yeah, okay, well, that's a value. Okay. That's a valid question. You know, I'm, I'm certainly this looks slick, and and uh, if it also turned into a car, it would be a doable thing. You know, well, that or or uh, you know a bedroom or something, you know, <laughs> um, uh, something else that it could do. Um, I, I just you know. Amphibians are, are uh, you know, make up such a large proportion of the general aviation fleet these days. I, I just don't know what the market is going to be for something like this, especially something um, with an aft-mounted turboprop engine. Um, the water erosion on the on the propeller blades. It's got a it's got a shroud. I wouldn't call it a ducted uh, uh, propeller arrangement. It's got a shroud around the propeller. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd love to see it. Yeah. I, you know, I always want to support, you know, efforts like this to to uh, push the envelope and, and break the mold and and uh, c- come up with new designs and make them fly and, and, and uh, realize dreams. Uh, I'm just not convinced this is uh, uh, something that the world is waiting for. 215 yeah, knots at 15,000 feet is what they're saying, and their goal is a 1,000-mile still air range with full seats and full tanks. Uh-huh. And they insist okay. that they're not going to apply a design that trades off passengers for fuel or vice versa. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, I, could, I can do almost all of that right now except for the landing and water part. Right, and taking off from the water. Right. Yeah, but like you said, you could land it in your pond as many times. You could land the debonair in your pond as many yeah, exactly. times as this. <laughs> yeah, so there we go. Hey, listen, we've got to take a break. Uh, uh, we'll be back in just a minute. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast... That sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly on the airplane. But do you do that? 
another thing we talked about a few episodes back the, before uh, Sun and Fun was uh, my witnessing of the odd um, elevator uh, behavior of an MD-80 uh, airliner. And uh, you guys explained it to me. I, I have to confess that when you were explaining it to me, I, I didn't 100% follow what you were talking about. And so uh, I was pleased to report that a listener uh, who, well, let's see, which listener is it here? It's uh, listener uh, G. Marshall uh, uh, went into the forums and uh, and gave us some more information here. And uh, and I, probably because I just had the the... I confess that I'm sure your, you guys' explanation was perfect. It's just that I'm thinking about so many things while we're doing this podcast that I, I wasn't able to really concentrate on what you were saying. I did sit down to read the information that G. Marshall has uh, has uh, pointed us to, and I I, th- I understand what he's saying. Um, he writes, um, if I'm not mistaken, the ailerons and elevators on a DC-9 MD-80 are only activated by servo tabs uh, without um, airflow going around the surface as they flop about. And then in another post, he points us to a, a posting on uh, airlinepilotchatter.com. It's a, apparently a forums. And uh, with a relatively long, not very long, but a, a somewhat detailed article um, about this exact thing he talks about the, the 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 poster i don't think g marshall is the writer of this i'm not sure who's the writer of this but anyways um this airline pilot chatter.com poster um uh, says he gets this exact question all the time and uh, he kind of set down on on a web page his explanation of it and uh, when i kind of concentrated and took the time to follow this now it kind of makes sense to me it's an odd is this what you guys were describing to me um that the ailerons and the elevators do not have direct connections, either cable or or hydraulic, to the whatever yokes or whatever kind of flight controls are in the cockpit. That rather, both the ailerons and the elevators have um, have trim tabs on them, and those are directly connected to the, let's say, the yoke. And when you move the yoke, you move the trim tabs, and that causes the larger control surface to move in the airflow. Um, and, and but otherwise, the larger air air control surface, the elevator or the ailerons, move independently without moving the yoke in the cockpit. Is that what you were telling me the other day? Kind of, sorta. Yeah. Does this make um, sense to you? I mean, I, I kind of this is a relatively authoritative uh, source here. Um, but uh, have you have you had a chance to read through this thing? Or you can skip down to the uh, you know the, the, he's kind of setting the stage here for it. And if you skip down to the section uh, headlined uh, uh, ailerons elevators, um, he talks a lot about this. And uh, yeah, no, it makes sense to me. Uh, it's uh, and this is separate from trim tabs, okay, or trim system. Trim systems, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is separate from from those. Yeah, and actually, he doesn't refer to them as trim tabs. He refers to them as control tabs. They're control tabs or servo tabs. Uh, uh, Any servo tabs will help push them the other way. Right. Um, so th- that's what the, those tabs are what the yokes are connected to yes. on the yep. MD-80 series. And it surprises me that they've got enough uh, force to actually manipulate the uh, the elevator's yeah, on 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 their role or in their job, uh, without a further control input to those surfaces themselves. But what other explanation makes sense when you can see these things moving in opposite directions like they do? Right, right. Yeah, it uh, 
Jeb, any, your thought? Is that the same thing? Or? Um, yeah, it is. Um, I, I guess the head-scratcher I have is why? Well, that, that is a good question, and I don't recall that he's gone into that exactly here. I mean, it's, you know, it's a design decision, I guess, I, uh, you know, for whatever yeah, but, reason. Well, yeah, what's the, what's the uh, problem that the engineers are trying to resolve? The, the problem or the virtue system. of the system. Right? Or the virtue, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm certainly willing to be educated on that, and I'm not, I'm not critiquing or, or disagreeing. I'm just, you know, again trying to get to the next level here and, and right. figure out, you know, why did they do it this way? That, yeah, well, maybe we can get G. Marshall to elaborate on this a little bit more. Um, interestingly, from reading this post, um, so the ailerons, which are controlled this way, they have this control tab, um, which moves. And that causes the larger aileron control surface to then move and and, and affect the the airflow. Um, the the ailerons on the left and right are apparently interconnected, so that if you sure. were to manually grab onto the aileron and push it up, the other one would go down. All right, and I think that's a really good thing. Yes. Well, the interesting thing though is that the elevator con- larger control surfaces on the left and the right are not interconnected, so they move up and down. You know, again, if you were back there and you could grab onto it and physically push on it, you could you could move the one on the right up and down without the one on the left moving at, in any way, shape, or form. And that's what I saw, and what apparently other people right. see that kind of right. tr- triggers this question yeah. is that is that those those elevator control surfaces move independently and and uh, so. Well, you know, well, let's let's just leave it at that. Let's just ask either G. Marshall or or some other listener, um, maybe can explain to us now what is the virtue or the problem solving of using these control tabs to cause the larger conser- control surfaces to move, as opposed to directly connecting to the right. I, I, I'm just, I, yeah, I'm just really, and I'm not disagreeing with anybody here. I'm just kind of curious as to, you know, what what problem was trying to be resolved or what it, what uh, benefit was trying to be achieved here one real quickly uh in in this uh this link that uh, our listener uh, sent us or provided for us uh verifies the thing that we were one of the things we were talking about which is that um the control yokes in the cockpit um the left one is you know i presume it's the left one linked to the left uh, uh elevator i should say left uh, control tab uh and the right one is linked to the right one um but when the airplane's not in flight um those two control columns are just flopping around independently of each other somewhere there's a linkage that links the two control columns mm-hmm. uh and consequently the uh servo tabs on the uh, on the elevators yeah well, when the airplane's on the ground, they can flop around independently. But once they're in flight, that system uh, is, shall we say, gets a little bit more solid. Yeah. So, and I'm I'm going to climb out on a little bit of a limb here, but my expectation of what this what this solved was simplifying the control architecture and saving weight. Because if you can do this job with servo tabs, control tabs and not have to put in hydraulics or some other kind of boost to move the larger surfaces. If you can let the air do the work for you, mm-hmm. then you should be able to get by with a lighter, smaller system for moving the uh, servo tabs, the control tabs. And 
save some weight in the airplane and some expense in the hardware that goes into it. Uh, and that was always a hallmark of McDonnell Douglas's uh, uh, airliner designs. Uh, how to make them really durable, really inexpensive, and, and as easy to maintain as, as they could design them, which on occasion led McDonnell to Douglas to make excitement. some designs. Yeah, some design <laughs> decisions that uh, that turned out in the long run to have some some uh, unexpected consequences uh, when something else went wrong that they never foresaw. Yeah, like routing all the control cables and lines down the center of the floor of the uh, uh, DC-10 so that when there was a catastrophic decompression that collapsed the floor, it interfered with the entire control architecture to the elevators and the rudders, and the airplane crashed. Or, or when the center engine uh, uh, suffers a catastrophic failure, ding, 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 <laughs> and, and, and sends shrapnel out through, um, you know, a three hundred sixty degree radius, it can also slice through the hydraulic system. <laughs> oh my! Fortunately, the engine controls were not damaged in that situation because the engines that remained were out on the wings. Yay! Yeah. So. Uh, We'll, we'll wait and hear whether we get some more suggestions or, or even or even authoritative uh, uh, education information. Oh, wait a minute. They weren't out on the wings. Yeah, right. Okay. What am I thinking of? All right. Um, yeah, yeah, they were. DC-10? What? David? Yeah, what? I'm sorry. They are right. They are out yeah. on the wings. Yeah. Never mind. Okay. Um, moving on here. So uh, this is a... What kind of airplane are you? This is a this is a very this is a very very distinctive internet thing. All right, you see these all the time. These little surveys that will you know ask you a bunch of questions and then tell you which character in Game of Thrones you are, you know, or <laughs> or whatever. All right, and so here's a uh, here's a airline personality quiz uh, uh, put on the internet Air, by airplane personality quiz. Exactly, put on the internet by uh, AOPA and. Uh, um, and so, and, and there's just no way we will do. We could do three episodes on this whole quiz, but let's just. I wanted to go down a few of these questions and just kind of. Uh, I want to. I'm curious what you got. What all three of our answers are for these questions. So they're asking. They're asking all sorts of uh, multiple choice questions about you know your taste in airplane types and pilot types and flying. You know, it's type of flying and so forth. And and as a result of the uh, 14 questions here, they then tell you what sort of airplane you are. And uh, I, I took this and neglected to save the answers. Yeah, I, I did too. And I did it again this morning. And the answer I got this morning was seems to you know be what I got before. But uh, anyways, let's just kind of go through a few, a few of these. So the first question is, uh, I would enjoy flying most in the historical era of, and the three choices are 1930s and 1940s, 1950s through 1980s, and today which we'll put aside for a second the fact that, that those three choices don't necessarily cover the ground. But, uh, um, uh, David, which of these three would you choose? I believe I chose 50s through the 80s. Yeah? Why? Uh, because that tends to be where I get the most utility and the most value. That is, that's where the airplanes I can afford tend to come from. Okay. And, Jeb, which one of those three would you choose? I think the same. Okay. Yeah. Inter okay. Why, Jeb? Um, because it's the era with which I'm perhaps most familiar. Um, if for no other reason than uh, uh, the production, the aircraft resulting aircraft types, uh, models, um, um, 
were much greater at the t- at that time than they are mm-hmm. today. Yeah. Okay. Um, coincidentally or not, I also chose fifties through eighties, uh, and for similar reasons. I mean, I, I don't. I've never owned an airplane, so I can't claim that as the reason. But but the airplanes that that were designed and created in those years are the airplanes that I find most appealing. Right. Um, right. With the exception of some really early ones, like the Champ is prior to that, I guess, and the, uh, um, I guess technically speaking, my beloved one fifties uh, are, are are earlier than that. But no, no I guess no. they're fifties, right? Yeah, they're fifties. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but the 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 one fifties, the one seventy twos, you know, that kind of thing is all in that era. Um, um, older airplanes are very very interesting, but not the kind of airplane that that is has you know. I love watching them and, and examining them, but flying them, it's not really been you know, part of my flying experience. And the new airplanes are really cool, but uh, it's just, you know, two sometimes. And that's odd for me, who being a technologist, but uh, I'm more attracted to, you know, I mean, I almost think of the 50s through the 80s as being the golden age of general aviation. I I would agree with that. Um, Yeah, (laughs) that's all all I'm going to say, right? Yeah, yeah. And so so that's that's sort of, uh, of why I picked... 50s through 80s um the second question is my favorite aviator of all times and of course this is a wild card question because they only give us three choices but but given that these three choices kind of represent styles if you will of of flying all right let's kind of take it that way charles Lindbergh, bob hoover or sean d tucker uh jeb why don't you go first this time i chose hoover uh the real answer is of course me (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Well, there you go. I like that. All right. Uh, why Bob Hoover over the other two? Um, I, I think longevity, uh, not just chronological longevity, but um, the guy was in World War II. He, he uh, stole a Falk Wolf 190 uh, to escape from a prison camp. Um, his uh um he was a test pilot after the war um he in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s he was you know one of the premier air show attractions uh he's still kicking he's still he's written books he's um he's the guy that you know if i if 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 i get reincarnated he's the guy i want to come back as mhm okay cool uh uh, I'll go next, and and I also picked Bob Hoover. This is going to be interesting if we are are, are in sync with so many of these. Um, Bob Hoover and Jeb, you put it very very well. All the all the above, yeah. um, you know, and uh, I mean, and in, probably the all time my all time favorite air show act is is what when Bob Hoover did his yeah. Uh, yeah. energy management, uh, um, you know, flights, and uh, so uh, yeah, Bob Hoover for sure for me. David, other than yourself, who's your favorite aviator of all time? Well, I'm privileged to be on a first name basis with two of these three guys i never had the privilege of meeting mr lindbergh uh bob hoover and sean d are both phenomenal people real gentlemen uh marvelous aviators but i'm gonna make it a hat trick hoover uh hoover is just such a nice guy yeah uh he's still he you know he's not kicking like he used to, but he's still out there and making appearances and signing books and uh, still got his seersucker suit, his white straw hat, his skimmers. Uh, his brain is as sharp as I saw him a few months ago. His brain is as sharp as, as, as ever. Uh, so, yeah, Hoover. Yeah. 
Um, favorite aviation movie. All right. Uh, once again, only three choices. But of these three, 12 O'Clock High, Top Gun, or The Magic of Flight. Now, before I ask you for your answers, I'm not familiar with The Magic of Flight. Do either of you know a movie called I'm, The Magic I'm of Flight? I'm not either, but there's this new thing called the Internet. Yeah, what does it say? <laughs> let, me see, let me use it real quick. Okay. Uh, yeah. 1996, um, kind of a documentary thing. Um, cock, Magic of Flight places viewers in the cockpit of a Blue Angels jet aircraft narrated by Tom Selleck. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, I'm familiar with it now, but I never heard of it before. Yeah, okay. All right, well, based on that, I, I still, I'll go first. Um, 12 o'clock high. Duh. Uh, yeah, 12 o'clock high, without a doubt. Uh, one of the greatest aviation movies of all time. May or may not be the greatest in my mind, but it is right up there. Yeah. It, it definitely fights for the number one slot. And so 12 o'clock high. Uh, David? Hands down, 12 o'clock high. Okay. Gregory Peck as a conscientious commander with a conscience about what he's doing and, and what it's doing to his men. And uh, it is such a human drama with an early bomb group in England, the 8th Air Force, 1942-1943, uh, as a focal point when we were getting our asses kicked in the battle over Europe. Uh, you know, we'd send 600 airplanes in and 500 would come back. Well, that was 100 airplanes and 600 men lost every time that every time you had one like that. And uh, the movie really, really deals with the stress and the tension and the fatigue uh, really well. Uh, nothing else out there touches it. Yeah. Um one more question. I'm going to go touch one on one more question here, and then we're going to skip, and we're going to re uh, return to this next episode. So, uh, And I'm going to jump ahead here just to kind of uh, finish this up. Uh, the motorcycle I'd like to ride, I'd most like to ride, <laughs> is. Uh, a lot of these are non-aviation questions. I think they're going for getting a sense of your lifestyle choices and your, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know. Oh, the, absolutely. The yeah. like to do. So, anyways, uh, motorcycle I'd most like to ride is Harley-Davidson, Kawasaki Ninja, Vespa, or I'd never ride a motorcycle, all right? I'm so, going to think about uh, that when I'm saddling up my... Yeah, right. So, uh, David, you go first. Which which one? Oh, out of that list, the Ninja. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Jeb? Same. Really? Yeah. That's ver The reason I say really, I believe you, Jeb, it's just that I also selected yeah. Kawasaki yeah. I, I knew that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah. It's because you see me drool over your CBR every time I'm done. Well, there's that, too. But, yeah, right. Um, yeah, so uh, anyways. All right, so we'll return to this next episode, and we'll complete this uh, survey and uh, figure – although apparently it's going to turn out that we're all the same airplane, but uh, well, yeah, time will be, tell. It's going to be awfully crowded in that Mooney might. I know. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'll there tell you, you I, when I took this test before, I didn't share the answer – the the result with my bride Annie, yeah, because it turned out to be the exact airplane that she wants us to get. Okay, all right. Well, let's let's leave that as a as a uh, a, a exercise or a guess a, for the a, listeners. A teaser. And, yeah, the teaser. Thank you. That's what I was going for. A teaser. Shout outs. What do we got here? Um, I got. I put a whole bunch of them on the list here, and I don't know if any of you want to grab any of them before we, uh, or if you have any others. You got any shout outs you want to uh, throw in here? Um, I had one that we didn't get to. Yeah. Um, 
Where is it? Oh yeah, okay. I, I know. I, I have a, you know, you know me. I, I might err on the side of sarcasm on occasion. Um, no. I, I know that comes as a shock to to two of you and to our listeners, uh, but I do have one I'll, I'll save uh, for a moment. Well, and no, oh, you're going to save it? Oh, uh, well, okay. well, well, we've got. Well, right, talk about we teasers! Got, My got, goodness. Okay, three or four. You know. I'll go first. Uh, I'll go first. Go ahead. Um, a, a quick shout out to our friends at uh, uh, AOPA for a project that they've apparently begun uh, that I hope they're continuing that uh, sounds very, very cool. Um, and that is that uh, uh, AOPA has started a project where they are going to tr- test the feasibility of doing uh, refurbishing of Cessna 152s. Are they going to keep talking? Is it going to become a Textron 152? Uh, Cessna 152s, uh, as ever, as longtime listeners know, one of my favorite all-time airplanes. And uh, they're going to try and um, restore the fleet, I guess, is one way of putting it, or refurbish the fleet and to uh, bring more Cessna 150s and 152s back into usage. This article repeatedly refers only to 152s, and it's not clear to me whether that's a typo or whether they really are limiting themselves to 152s, which is a slightly small, uh, dramatically smaller population than 150s. But uh, um, I just did you know, a shout-out to the AOPA program here. That is, uh, there's a... Um, Story. We'll put a, sh- a link in the show notes to this article on on uh, on AvWeb talking about AOPAs. Maybe we'll find an AOPA story too um, about this program. I, I think it's a cool idea. Um, I've often ta- thought about the idea. There's there must be four or five one fifties um, tied down out in the uh, overgrown grass at uh, Nashua's airport, um, just sitting there begging to be restored. And I keep every time I drive by them, I go, I should find out who owns those airplanes and make them an offer and, and see if I could restore it, you know, see if it's worth, if it's still restorable. Um, but, uh, kudos to AOPA for this program. Uh, I'm, I'm anxious to hear more about it. What else? David, you got a shout out? Yeah, sort of. Uh, I want to shout out to a community, uh, the Wellington Aero Club in Florida, mm-hmm. who is in the middle of a fight with a new resident who ran for the city council, the village council. Yeah, I saw the story. Bought a single family home on an acre of land within the uh, Wellington Aero Club development, which has a runway and is. And then proceeded to try to regulate the airport's operations to satisfy his personal predilections for peace and quiet in an airport community. So this is my shout out to the Aero Club Property Owners Association and the Aero Club residents and the people in the village. Uh, and I hope you can hit this turkey up for the 68000 bucks it has cost you so far fighting off his misplaced, ill-advised, and just downright brainless attempt to change a community he chose to buy into, knowing full well that that airport and runway were there and that people that lived there used it. Yeah. So yeah. go get him, guys. I hope that the this, this may be all over now. I did not take time to update myself past a couple of weeks ago. But they were winning this. They need to continue to win this. Uh, we need to put a sign out that airports are not whimsy targets for whoever moves into the neighborhood. Just like we need to put a sign out to the FAA saying you really should hire people that learn the farce. But that's another, that's another complaint for another day. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, no. Jeb, what was your shout out? Well, um, first of all, I wanted to uh, just kind of highlight for our listeners that the uh, NOTAM for this summer's air venture in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, is now available. You can go to the uh, Air Venture website or uh, navigate through the EAA website uh, to find some links that will give you um, the opportunity to either um, put your name and address in uh, for a, a hard copy, a paper copy of the NOTAM, or to download it in, in PDF format. Um, if you even think about going to AirVenture this summer, and of course we would think that you probably should, uh, now's a good time to go ahead and download the NOTAM and start becoming familiar with it. Yeah. We were talking offline about the fact that there's a, a somewhat different uh, restriction in there this time, right? Yeah, there is. There's, uh, uh, for the first time in my memory, uh, and I can't uh, uh, speak for all of the, uh, all of the shows, um, there is the likelihood of a temporary flight restriction being imposed uh, over Oshkosh uh, the last uh, three days of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, information uh, is that that's to accommodate the uh, possible appearance of the Blue Angels, something that hasn't been uh, complete. Blue Angels or Thunderbirds? I'm sorry, Thunderbirds. Thank yeah, you. Thunderbirds. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, the T-Birds haven't been formally locked down as appearing, but all signs are green, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're in the NOTAM. Of course, they have to get the NOTAM out earlier, uh, but in the NOTAM, they are uh, highlighting the possibility of a TFR over the airport uh, to accommodate the Thunderbirds' uh, performances. Um, how that uh, will work, how that might impact uh, arrivals, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, I don't yeah, know. I don't. It's really weird because when you stop and think about it, the NOTAM is a TFR, right? It's a lowercase TFR, right? And uh, you know, it is in fact a temporary flight restriction. We're talking about the official uppercase TFRs yeah. that, the, uh, yeah. um, that the feds have been putting out. I would imagine that if they do a Thunderbirds TFR during Air Venture, it will have much more impact on kind of aircraft flying through the area um, overhead of the normal NOTAMs um, airspace. And Which is like kind that. of, I'm sure, the idea. Yeah, uh, you know. I don't know. It's curious to me, you know, the, the Blue Angels, of course, appeared at this year's Sun and Fun. Uh, and I'm not aware of, of a, a TFR uh, having been issued uh, to accommodate those performances. Um, the um, the Thunderbirds are still using 16s, aren't they? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I think they're still using uh, uh, yeah. F-16s. The uh, uh, Blue Angels are using F-A-18s. Uh, the uh, performance characteristics, I would think, are somewhat similar. The, Thunder, uh, the uh, Thunderbirds F-16 is probably a little bit more maneuverable. Why they need the TFR, uh, why the Thunderbirds need a TFR over Oshkosh and the Blue Angels don't need one over Lakeland is up for discussion. My guess would be Air Force, Air Force versus Navy. My, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So, and, and, and remember, yeah. an F-A-18 can land in a much smaller space. 
course, it needs an arrestor cable, but it needs an arrestor cable. Oh, okay. We saw the results of, of an F-16 landing along at, at AirVenture a few years ago. So, we did, actually, yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was uh, uh, quite exciting, actually. It was, yeah. yeah but, it uh, was, yeah. And uh, it led I, to some interesting photo opportunities. But uh, Two, two um, real quick uh, other yeah. shout-outs. Quickly, uh, please. Yeah. First, first one is to the Boeing 737. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there are now more than 8,000 copies of that airframe uh, in, having been delivered by Boeing. Um, the first one um, um, was, um, I think, delivered in, in 1967 or 68 to United Airlines. And the most recent uh, one, a 737-900ER, uh, or I should say the 8,000th uh, example of the 7.3, uh, was also delivered to uh, United Airlines. So uh, uh, it's probably, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's not even a stretch to say that this is the most popular model in, in Boeing's model lineup over the years. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in the and, history of aviation. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's in the history of aviation for air transport. For air transport, for air transport yeah, more one seventy twos, right? Yes, yes. And yeah. and it, it, further, Boeing's putting in forty three three sevens a month out the door in Renton. More really, more forty three a month. More than one a day. And all That's of the impressive. fuselages come straight out of Spirit Aerosystems here in Wichita, shipped by rail. As a complete fuselage, ray dome to tail cone on special rail cars. They Do they finish. install the cabins there too? The interior? No, oh, the okay. interiors get installed up in Renton, yeah. uh, but they're ready for the in- interiors to go in. Mm-hmm. Uh, mo- the cockpits are all installed and wired up, uh, and uh, the struts and the cells come out of here as well. Right. So it's. It's really something you drive by what used to be called Boeing, Wichita, now Spirit Aerosystems, and drive by on the west side of the uh, building and see this marshalling yard where the rail cars line up. Uh, and they're pushing a, a, a train, just about a train a day out of there to keep up. Yeah, cool. I, I, cool. Just, just some yep. real, real quick math. Uh, 43 a month, 43 times 12 is 516. A lot of GA manufacturers would give a major body part to produce 516 airplanes a year. My oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, yeah. They'd, be, they'd, they'd love to be doing that. Yeah, yeah really. Yeah. Is that it, Jeb, anymore? Uh, finally. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. To the New York Times. Recent s- story um, highlighting uh, the presence of a uh, U.S. registered uh, Challenger, Canada Challenger business jet on the ground at uh, in Tehran um, apparently raised a lot of cackles and eyebrows uh-huh. and resulted in the following sentence in the in the New York Times yes quote the shadowy role of american banks in private aircraft ownership has grown even as financial regulators work to shine a light on wall street's activities a legacy of the 2008 financial crisis. I guess what, I, what shadowy role of American banks oh, yeah. in private aircraft ownership are we even talking about here? <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, you know, it's like what? Yeah, the banks and the uh, and the business aircraft associ- business aircraft 
manufacturers, you know, two of the great sinister villains of our time. Exactly, exactly. You know, um, but the, the article talked about um, this uh, this challenger again being on the ground in Tehran, and there are you know any number of um, uh, sanctions and and uh, whatnot that apply to uh, doing business with and even traveling to Iran. Um, the uh, unregistered aircraft was was there. Um, you know, you're likely not going to get into Iran without having some paperwork uh, 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 taken care of. And this particular airplane apparently was staging out of somewhere in Europe. Uh, but there are aircraft all over the world that are unregistered for any number of various reasons. The uh, registration tracks pack tracks back to a uh, bank based in Utah. And the, the New York Times was, you know, questioning why uh, um, the, the, the uh, uh, registration materials were not more transparent to denote who operates the aircraft. Well, you know, trucks, cars, motorcycles are all bouncing around all over the world, uh, registered to banks and or businesses and or uh, entities who aren't the ones operating them. Yeah. And to, so. to single out a business jet as... Uh, uh, a business jet regulation as being shadowy is a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I think it's a lot of a stretch. Yeah, a lot yeah, of a stretch. Point though. taken, point taken. David, any other shout-outs? We done? Fork time? Stick me with a fork. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Jeb Burnside is a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, uh, as well as other stuff. Speaking of which, you've been working on anything fun that you can tell us about? Uh, not that I can really talk about. Um, um, look for my byline in the, in the usual places, like uh, 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 the uh, Aircraft Electronics Association's uh, um, Avionics News Magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, where can we find you on the internet in uh, general? AviationSafetyMagazine.com, uh, net, uh, and uh, JEBurnside.com, although I've basically kind of taken that down and and uh, uh, put up a single page of, you know, but... Uh, I think uh, we should just turn the homepage of JEBurnside.com into that new picture that you've put on Skype, and we'll just kind of make it a full-size picture, you know? We'll put underneath it the year of your birth, and now you're going to have now you're going to have you know thousands and thousands of our listeners trying to ping me on Skype just to see this 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 image. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let I'm me, sorry. Did you say where you are on Twitter? Um, Burnside J on the Twitter, and uh, I'm also on the Facebook thingy. Uh, I haven't been on Facebook lately. I'm not sure. Good for you. Yeah, I I don't know when I'll get back on Facebook. Good for you. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. What have you been working on, David? Uh, I'm working on a piece that will appear in the June issue of uh, World Aircraft Sales on how the business aviation community could avoid the heartbreak of uh, aircraft missing that the Malaysian folks have been going through with uh, Flight 370. Cool. June issue. June issue. Very nice. And where can people in general find you on the Internet? Uh, Avbuyer.com is the gateway to all things related to world aircraft sales. And if you're listening from across the Atlantic, GA Buyer Europe's available through that link uh, as well. Uh, AEA.net for my work in Avionics News Magazine, where we've got a number of new things uh, in the pipeline. Uh, occasionally, Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, and on Twitter? On Twitter, uh, Real Higdon. Mm-hmm. 
And and unlike Jeb and I, you've remained strong and don't even have a Facebook account, right? No, matter of fact, I've quit a couple of outfits that told me that I had to continue participating and reading their stuff that I had to, after several years of being registered with them, confirm my identity by creating a Facebook account. Hmm. Yeah, so no. after talking yeah. to their tech yeah. people a couple of times and finding it, no, they didn't really think about an alternative way to confirm. Because everybody's got a Facebook has. account. Right. Yeah. Everybody does Facebook. And I said, yeah. okay, uh, you know, take me off your list. See you well, later. no, all you have to do is go to Facebook. I said, let me put this in a different language. Yeah. Take me off your list. That's right. right. No, never mind. I'll just go through the link and deregister that way. So it's uh, dropped back how much email I've got to throw. Yeah, I know, huh? There you go. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jeb. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a uh, private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, you, please check out my Around the Field series of Kindle eBooks uh, at Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. Uh, you can also follow me at Twitter.com slash Jack Hodgson. Uh, or you can sign up for my email newsletter. You can get more information about that at uh, AroundTheField.com. Uh, and you can learn way more than you really want to know about me at JackHodgson.com. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for his help with the show notes and in the forums. Uh, thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, Jim Goldman, and the many of the listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. Uh, and don't forget, you can check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. Uh, also, uh, you can see who's doing what on the New Ratings webpage of fame. And much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. Hey, Dave, were you going to say something? Yeah, uh, it's something about aging because as uh, we've figured out over the years, the key to long life is flying because, as you know, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talk, and let's go flying. TTFN. TTFN.